KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. From KCRW Santa Monica and KCRW.com, it's The Treatment. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. My guest is a best-selling author. She is an Emmy and Peabody winner. She is, of course, a profoundly interesting and someone who's weaponized, I think, embarrassment as a stand-up. But I think of her first and foremost as an actor. I had the pleasure of seeing her on stage on Broadway for a show for which she got a Tony nomination. She is currently starring in creating, producing, and directing several episodes of this show, Life and Beth, which is now in its second season. My guest, of course, is Amy Schumer. I think I've embarrassed her enough. Thank you so much for doing this. Ah, that intro just made me feel so good about myself. Well, you should, but I do think of you as an actor. (laughs) And I told you this when I met you, that it's fascinating about, you know, watching you on stage or watching you in movies. And I think about what you've done in this show is... You're using silence in the way I've seen you use on stage as a stand-up. And so often you play characters who are almost archetypal, fast-talking women. And you're not doing that on Life and Death. Wow, I love that. That's so perceptive. I mean, not like I didn't know you were perceptive, but that's just a really lovely thing to notice. Thank you. I just find it fascinating that so much of this show, I mean, and, and I want to go to the way that you direct it, because in, starting that first episode, you know, when there are the flashbacks to Beth's life as a teenager, we notice there's something kind of different about the camera. Uh, sometimes there's distortion, sometimes the angles are different, but you use it as a way to make visual points about these being flashbacks. And I just want to talk to you about the way you conceive the show as a whole, because each season, really, stuff that we see in the beginning in the first episode pays off in the end. But I want to talk to you about deciding to direct this. I was really lucky to have the first season work with a DP named Jonathan Fermansky, and then season two with Rob Barocci. And both of them, we we wanted the flashbacks to look visually different. And really that we were trying to keep it the way you have memories, like the way I remember things, which is kind of a little hazy and from my perspective. So, you know, rather than get every detail, keep some things kind of just hazy, uh, like sort of so they would feel like a memory. And yeah, we use different lenses, and you know, different lighting, everything different, um, not just to show the different time period, but um, yeah, to create that kind of hazy but intimate feeling. And, and so often in the flashbacks, there's a sense of the character, especially Beth, being kind of overwhelmed by the size of rooms. I mean, things seem really big around her. That's amazing. This is so fun. I, you know, people usually just say like, have you gained weight? Um, so it's so the second half. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Cross those questions out. Um, yeah, I think it's the kind of thing where, you know, when you're younger and you're smaller and you are smaller in those spaces and they do seem bigger to you. Like, I think we've all had that experience where you go back to see something from your youth that you thought of as being really big. And you're like, Oh my God, this is so small. And so, um, 
Yeah, she is kind of swallowed up by her environment. But I just think it's it's what it shows to me is this thing I've always thought about you is people don't think of you as being an actor. And I even think about you when you're doing your stand-up in, on stage is that's a persona. You're playing a character. The way you use smiles on stage as a way to sort of keep people off guard. Those are all worked out choices, almost like actor choices to me. Definitely. Yeah, I just did. Um, I was on someone's show and they were like, oh, you're you're pretty chill. And I was like, yeah, like, you know, that's, I'm not, I'm not performing for thousands of people, (laughs) you know, but the sort of armor you need to guard yourself with, I, I, in my experience is especially to hold the attention of a, a live crowd, you know, you, you have to be the authority and you have to hold the attention. They they paid a lot of money and they got a babysitter and they got parking and they and you're their night and you've been on their calendar. So I really want to give, you know, every ounce of myself to the people who came to see me live. But I have found confidence as a comedian to take those silences that you mentioned and the pauses and and have some vulnerability. But in life, I'm really not like my stand-up character much at all. You know, you can't really go around being that. It's like, you know, this is horrible. I'm going to compare myself to Beyonce, but she had this like alter ego that she talks about, Sasha Fierce. And that's kind of like my alter ego. It is a part of me, you know, there is a part of me that, but really like, you know, I'm, I think at my most honest, I'm pretty, pretty quiet and, um, I almost said demure, and I don't even really know what that means, but yeah. It's the treatment. It only took my guest less than 10 minutes to compare herself to Beyonce. She's Amy Schumer. She's starring in the series <laughs> Life and Beth on Hulu. You can also hear the show at kcow.com slash the treatment. But there is something in that because having got to spend like a, a, a dinner with you, and I think it's the thing that I, I think I said to you, but it always surprises people about this because Chris Rock is the same way. I think people assume because comedians take up so much space and because they're so big that they're shocked when they get to encounter them as as people who don't take as much space. And I think because you've done that so often on, on screen in the movies that what you're doing in Life and Beth is we're watching her observe and not being like the first person with a line or even the last person with a line. And I almost wonder part of this is some way of you're saying, I want to show people that I have a lot more to offer than what they've seen so far. Yeah. Well, I also love giving people the um, room to, you know, have their characters live out their sort of lives, you know, and just kind of, li- you know, live it out truthfully on camera I also, I always think of this quote that Chris said, which I feel like, I don't know why I feel like you and I might've talked about this at that dinner, but he just, one time he said, if ignorance is bliss, then what's the opposite of that? Like, and when you're a comedian and you do notice every little thing, like it's kind of uh, living hell, you know, you are kind of trapped in this mind racing box. Like it is a little bit like being trapped in a nightmare for, for uh, I think most comedians, I always say, except for Jerry Seinfeld, he's kind of the exception because I think he's pretty, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if he's really the exception, but, and you know what this, it's not so much, let me show you what I can do, you know, 
it's it's really corny. I, and I, when people used to say telling stories, I'd be like, shut up. But uh, I <laughs> I have been just trying to get better. I love movies. I love TV shows. I love you know creative people. And and I I went to NYU to study in their graduate film program, like for directing. And so I just try and like educate myself and get better. And so I hope that, you know, whatever we're seeing is like, is only going to go up from there. And like, hopefully it's like the worst thing I'll ever do. (laughs) Um, Because I want to keep getting better and, you know, as a director and an artist overall. I guess I felt like that because this is, I think in a lot of ways, and certainly in terms of persona, a, a departure from what we've seen you do. It's also such a, a 180 from inside Amy Schumer um, <laughs> and, and that there's a continuity in this. But as you, we did talk about this, by the way, that night we were at dinner. Because the thing yeah. I think that's interesting about so many of these characters that you played, and it really hits home with Life and Beth, is the dawning of self-awareness in these people and that they have to change, but they don't know how to change. Yeah. I mean, I, I think about that every day. Like I, the journey of life and, um, what we are discovering about ourselves. And like, every time you feel like you understand something about yourself, it doesn't it necessarily help. And it doesn't mean you can change it. And, you know, you want to accept and love everyone for how they are and for who they are, but you can't help, but be brokenhearted by it sometimes. And, all these nuances of life are really interesting to me and having people see their own experience, like watching, hopefully watching this show and thinking about their own experience is like the dream end game for me for this show. Well, we should say to let people know what the show is about, and I think this is the way I've described it to friends, it's kind of like a reversal 21st century version of the Mary Tyler Moore show in which the lead character explodes, and her life is exploded, except in this case, she does the exploding. I, I think what's interesting that so often, I want to talk to you about this, is that you're finding a way to show characters kind of coming to understand something about the world. That, that change usually happens pretty fast in some of the movies, but here it takes place over a very long period of time, and you go back to show the roots of the awakening for Beth too. And I think it's a really daring thing for you to do because it's really sort of opening yourself up to people in the way that I hadn't seen you. Well, you sort of do it in media shower, but not on such a big scale. This is also just selfishly how I process things through writing. I feel very lucky that having the sketch show that something could, there could be this one thing that really bothers me and we can sort of see that out. And and this TV show is such a great way to communicate like lots of things that I want to say. And, and I feel like it's only fair for me to, if I'm dissecting all these characters to also dissect myself and like people have different perspectives of you and they're, they're all right. And they're all wrong. You know, there's no like, you're a bad person. You're a good person. I think about that a lot. My uh, relative, Alexander Gutman, who was a Auschwitz survivor, he the last thing he said in his um, Shoah Foundation, you know, they they like recorded some Holocaust survivors for the Shoah Foundation at USC, and the, they said the last thing he was like, they were like, "What do you want to say? What do you want the world to know?" And he just said, "I just want to say that people are hypocrites." And he's right, which is why you can't, 
you can't dismiss any whole group of people like or any person like we're all we all have that in us we're all great people and bad people and you know some of us are worse than others or better than others but yeah so I like showing that that's really like fun to show that just when you think somebody's like the villain or something they're actually the the hero yeah I mean because part of this too is just I think sort of detonating what we think of as sitcoms, even now sort of modern sitcoms, still when they show us a character, we won't get that big a facet or that big a change in that character. And that's just Kevin's character, Matt, who has gone through so much stuff and has changed. But by the 10th episode of the second season, he's still that guy. I mean, he's in him hitting on the, the doula. And I don't want to give too much away in that, but he just can't right. stop being himself. Even though he smells like a better person, he's still him. Right. His DNA is still the same. Yeah. And he, and that's the thing. And that's the thing with my dad too. It's like, he was kind of a womanizer. I mean, my dad's still alive, but, and he's crazy about me, you know, like he couldn't be a more loving father. Like just all these these things can be true at the same time. This show feels so, so demanding. Part of it too is just watching you, again, watching people in it and, and not judging them because the show doesn't judge them. It, to me, it's, it feels like a, a sort of a comic version of a John Cassavetes movie in that way. I, I have to say, like, I'm not trying to be humble or anything, but like, I think everybody on the set of our show is really takes it seriously and enjoys it. I hope they feel appreciated and like it really does feel like we're all making something together. And I feel like, I don't know, I think you can feel that when you're watching something that's kind of inspired. I hope everybody worked really hard to create this. And um, I don't know, I hope that you can feel that kind of love from everybody who made it. We're talking ambition with Amy Schumer, her newest project as creator. So many roles, including starring in this show, is Life and Beth, which is on Hulu. It's the treatment, which you can also hear at KCRW.com. There's more to come. Stay with us. It's The Treatment, which you can also hear at KCRW.com, where you hear the voice of my guest, actor, Amy Schumer. Sorry, I don't mean to call you out like that, Amy. Uh, the show is Life and Death on Hulu. The cast, and I have to say, you know, your Maya, she's a, such a wonderful presence of gravity. Just talk about casting the show, because it feels incredibly lived into me. So when we see stuff like the payoff from the martini bowling in the first episode of the season, the way it pays off in the last. I mean, we actually, we feel we watch these characters that go through so much, but we understand what this is all about. Talk about how you cast it, because that really fascinates me. Yamanika Saunders, who plays Maya, is a great comedian. We've been friends for a really long time. She just can't be on camera enough. Like, she's just so amazing to watch and you know, such a scene stealer, like you just can't help but love her. Everybody, that's sort of what I look for the most with casting. If I'm looking at tapes and is that thing that some performers have that you can't teach, they just have to have this thing where you just love them. 
there's some performers, they just walk on stage and you don't need them to say anything remarkable. You just love them. And I would say that's true for Sass Goldberg, who plays Jess, and Ariel Siegel, who plays Jen. And really, like, across the board, mostly everyone in the cast who I either know for a long time or they auditioned. But yeah, it's like, it's that thing. Be a talented person, but but just, you know, you can't, like, create that if it doesn't exist. I don't really know how to write episodic television, if you didn't notice. So I didn't really try to learn. You know, I haven't really tried to learn. So what I just did, I noticed how I was watching things. I was, you know, I was the joke of like, you're like, I don't, I'm too tired. I don't want to watch a whole movie, but then you'll watch like six hours of a series, you know? So, um, I was like, I want to watch, I want to make something that people can watch for like five hours, you know? I think the sort of format and the tone and whatever at first people are like, this isn't like some a format that I'm that comfortable with, but hopefully it's like subtitles. You stop noticing and you just get into it. I don't want to learn how to write an episode <laughs> of a TV show. Because the show is so dense, because there's so much going on in it. I'm always surprised by the, the way that you, how judiciously, but the way you drop the flashbacks in and the way you come out of them. I was thinking like in that, in that second episode of the season, when you come out of the flashback and, and Beth is reaching through that mirror frame, which is just such a beautiful moment. Because it's what you do sometimes, sort of figuratively or literally reaching for the past or trying to sift something out of it. And there's so many moments like that in the show. Uh, Josh Peterson and Leo Schwartz are amazing um, production designers. And they, they, they really got that, got that nuance and would give little signals, you know, everywhere if you look for them. Just stuff that's so fun to play with and like right on theme. And yeah, like if you watch TV, like the way I watch most TV, which is like, I'm also looking at my phone and eating and, <laughs> you know, it's like, this isn't that forgiving of people watching like that. But uh, I think you're fine. If you, if you tune out for an episode or two, I think you'll still be fine. It's the treatment. I'm hoping you haven't gone to YouTube yet. I'm here with Amy Schumer, who's a star and creator of Life and Beth. You can also hear the show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. There's so much of the show, I think, probably surprises people uh, because they wouldn't have expected this kind of thing from you had they not seen you do something like Meteor Shower, which really, I think, engaged you in the way that I found kind of thrilling on stage. You're encouraging me to do more theater, which is where I come from. And I love theater. I mean, not like that's so original, but the, like those silences are so fun, like so powerful. To show all of these characters with some dignity, you know, even the in the flashbacks, like sort of the boys who mistreated me and whatever, like I still want to show them with dignity. An example of that, that juxtaposition is, you know, you're making fun in the present day of your mother for promising that show, but the flashback is not a cynical look back at all. And it's doing the thing you're talking about. It's, it's giving those characters dignity. It's helping us understand who and what she is. It's helping us understand why she said what she said, because... You know, it's kind of a watchword that came early in the show where you say to, to Kevin, I'm evolving. He said, evolve? I didn't know we were supposed to evolve. And he's like holding the word like it's a grenade. So much of the show is about that kind of evolution and, and giving characters dignity. And, and I think, again, it's a really ambitious show. And I'm shocked that people aren't really talking to you about it in that way. 
I cannot tell you how much this is, I think, the first interview I've ever done where we have just talked about the show, like the work I'm doing and not um, other things. But what, 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 what do people, I mean, I know you, people want you to, you know, be Amy Schumer, but I think for me, the, the key was just watching how liberated you were on stage and how you're using your whole body. And it was just, oh, this is really interesting. And just watching how your posture would change. You were listening to somebody. And these are all things I get to see in this show. Yeah, that's making me think of home video cameras were such a big, there was such a boom of them when I was a kid. And my dad was one of the people who had like one of those giant camcorders or whatever. And was, and he would just film everything. He would film us all the time. And so... And so, and we still have those videos. So I think having that kind of sensibility and that comfort with being on camera built in to just behave and just live. And then in David Byrne's show, American Utopia, where he, the the whole show is just him and the, and the musicians untethered performing. And he kind of points out like, there's nothing more interesting to look at than people. I would be way more fascinated just watching someone honestly behave than like a big car chase scene. Because I rewatched Trainwreck too for this, and and just sort of seeing there's some a bit of the DNA of that when, when she goes home in Trainwreck. Again, that's why I wonder if there's just these things you felt like you want to revisit, but really give more of yourself to. And just also watching, we talk about the casting. This may be the first adult, real adult role that Michael Sarah's had a chance to play. And he steps up in the way that we see so many of the actors step up in this. And I just feel like this has to be an, an immensely rewarding experience. I'm shocked that people aren't talking to you about it in that way. I've been getting really nice feedback about the show. I shouldn't say that. I just mean in if I'm, you know, talking to anyone like in an interview or anything, it's, you know, just, I just feel like I haven't gotten to speak about it in depth like this, I think. And it's just so, it's so nice to be able to do that. So I do want to thank you for this experience. Also, Michael Sarah is so lovely. Did you ever see him on stage? Yes, I, I did actually. And, and it, it's, again, it's people giving, being given a chance to sort of step up and, and yeah. him using his whole body in the performance in a way that he often hadn't in movies, but he did on stage. Again, this is really fascinating stuff to me because it shows to me so much about the way people inhabit rooms. I'm just so glad that he trusted me to do this and that we would just our conversations about these characters and about the dialogue and these scenes and what's happening. I think that we both just enjoyed that so much and we would talk for hours because we weren't really friends before. We we had met a couple times, but it was such a fun way to get to know each other to like, I mean, we also would talk about, you know, whatever nonsense, but just kind of philosophize about this stuff and, and him becoming a father right after I'd become a mother and just navigating our marriages and ourselves and our families. And yeah, it was just so enjoyable to, to bring all of that and just to have such faith and love for your scene partner, you know, it's like such a gift. There's so much kind of physical trust in it. I mean, when he's introduced to us in the first season, he almost looks like he's being introduced as the butt of a joke. Or a murderer. Yes, or that. I mean, there's so many things, but not somebody who will become a fully realized and empathetic character. But you offer clues to what he is one step at a time. Just the look of realization on 
Beth's face when she sees him playing with a boy at the airport. It's such a powerful moment, and that's sort of juxtaposed to me with the uh, the way the previous episode ended, which just the show taking a breath with that look at the skyline of New Orleans. I just feel like there's such a wealth of stuff in this. And I know I keep getting back to this, but just all these things that you love, like getting a chance to sort of offer nuanced behavior and taking your time and inhabiting a room and not just nodding your head or being or spewing out material. There's so much in life and Beth that really feels like this kind of apotheosis for you. Definitely. You talking about New Orleans made me think of there's that scene of preservation jazz hall. And, you know, the instinct would be to like, you know, you want to hold the viewer's attention, kind of get out quick. But I really wanted to let the song breathe and and show me like giving myself a moment to just enjoy the music and be present and have stood up for myself and like and really show these musicians, you know, and like get in their faces and feel what it would be like to be in that room. And that is sort of me sort of meeting my ambition and like leaving my fear behind and trusting myself and not apologizing for asking what I want from these scenes, you know, from either performance or visually. Yeah, I think especially as a woman, I still have this experience where where I'll ask Usually I'll ask for the sort of shot that I want. And this is in every situation I've ever been in. And I I get told immediately why that can't happen. And then I will say, okay. And then come back, you know, after a minute or two, a little more gently and say, you know, I would, I really think we might be able to do that. And then it's like, okay. But yeah. And it's just a matter of, you know, I'm just more housebroken now and I know how to navigate that kind of like resistance uh, when you see something really strongly. And I used to accept no as the answer, but now I know better. The show feels to me, and certainly in storytelling terms, is confident because you're talking about the New Orleans and being in the preservation hall. And what we're feeling in that is that we're feeling that drum beat, which, you know, at, at the end for the wedding ceremony before, you know, when you guys are doing the march down the streets and the, before the, the camera moves into the, the skyline, we're feeling that yeah. same drum beat that you felt in Preservation Hall. So even yeah. there, we're feeling that, that there's a heartbeat and there's this thing that these all feel like filmmaking touches to me. And and much as you, when you said the phrase housebroken, I sort of winced because I said, no, this feels like confidence to me. You are seeing confidence from me. Um, and I do feel like I sort of have shed those starting sentences with saying, I'm sorry, and just asking for what I want. You know, we're shooting in Preservation Hall and, and the sort of coverage of it. And I thought, and I said, Ben, Ben Jaffe, who's a sousaphone player, I just said, I'm like, wait, he knows how to shoot jazz. You know what I mean? I'm like, how do we like help me here? You know, I'm like, should we like, I want to get closer. I want to feel, you know, and he goes, get in our faces. And I was <laughs> Charlie, our ACAM operator. I'm, he's, you know, handheld, all these handheld operators. And I'm, I'm in their ear while they're shooting. I'm going, get in his face, get closer, you know, like whatever. And, <laughs> and that is a confidence that I did not have even a year ago. So, but it's thrilling. And there's no reining me back in now. 
Well, good. You should be rated back in. My guest, who I hope comes back to talk to us again, is Amy Schumer. She's starring, producing, directing, writing, everything on Life and Beth on Hulu. I can't thank you enough for your time, Amy. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. We know her as a comedian, but Amy Schumer is proving herself as a writer, director, and an actor with the Hulu series Life and Beth. Its second season has just dropped. Tracking the movements of artists from inside the beast at the archive, kcrw.com slash the treatment. Stay with us. There's more ahead. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's the treatment. KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes. Join Jacqueline Coley as she hosts a brand new podcast, Seen on the Screen. Meet the innovative people at NBC Universal as they share their journeys, inspirations, and the movies that define them. Each episode is an intimate and fun conversation about the impact of film. Seen on the Screen is available now wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. It's the treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. Most people read books. Sam Watson writes them. In the last four years, he's written three. <laughs> the first, he was here for his amazing book, uh, Detective Work on the Making of Chinatown, The Big Goodbye. And then during that COVID era, remember that the Halcyon period back uh, at least a year or so ago, uh, he was here for his previous collaboration with uh, Janine Basinger, Hollywood and Oral History. This is the newest book, The Path to Paradise, a Francis Ford Coppola story. This is a book about somebody who is indomitable in the most fascinating way, that every setback he manages to sort of turn into something that he can use. I've never seen anybody who, in some sort of instinctive way, knows how to pillage all the detritus and, and, and debris around him and build another empire out of it. Wow. Yeah, that is Francis. That's exactly right. I mean, that's creativity, right? I mean, we all have to take what we have and make it into something else. That's the survival instinct. That's the artistic instinct. And most times in movie making, it's the director's instinct because you're going to be limited by what you have, your resources, your time, the weather, etc. And Fred makes Francis one of the great um, improvisers, that ability to just say, okay, this is it, and uh, we're going to go with it, even if what he's going with is his own destruction. <laughs> to me, it's fascinating because it starts off with somebody who's trying to build a literal megalopolis, yeah. and by the end has to settle for making a fictional one. Yeah. I started out writing this book wanting to write about Zoetrope, the, the great one of the great movie-going experiments in Hollywood post-studio era. And as I was starting to discover Zoetrope... I started to see that it wasn't just a filmmaking entity. It was a 
plan for living. It was a utopian undertaking. And that was only a step away from knowing that Francis was working on Megalopolis. So I went, oh, my God, this is a rehearsal, a real life rehearsal for this movie. This this is the Petri dish for the work of his life, um, which is Megalopolis. Unlike so many other figures that you've written about, he is really somebody who thrives on having a group of people around him who are catalysts rather than employees. Right. He is not a perfectionist, Francis, and that's partly what allows him to work the way you're describing, to really create communally. They don't work for Francis in insofar as people worked for George Lucas, more of like, you know, a pair of hands or craftsmen or technicians. The people that Francis surrounds himself with are bringing their full body and soul to the project. You know, there's a funny story I have in the book when Francis is doing one from the heart in L.A. You have um, a lot of funny stories. I have about a lot of the... funny stories about that. But at one point, Lucy Fisher, who's running the studio, hears that the janitor has notes. And that right there is the glory and the liability of the way that Francis works. His power is multiplied by the power of everyone around him. Now, that's not how everybody makes movies. It's much more expensive to wait for the janitor's point of view, especially when you multiply that by, you know, the hundreds of people that are on a movie. But there is no apocalypse now without that way of working. I think, and, and you report in, in, in the book that that whole story about him being co-opted by a crew member who was presumably a friend. Mm-hmm. And his feelings had to be out the way they, they have to be out when you work in theater, when you know everybody. Everybody you're looking to for a contribution. And you can sort of smell or sense when that relationship is going sour. And we see that in this anecdote about that in the book. The feeling of friendship you know, that emerges from community is so important to Francis. Maybe the most important thing, maybe more important than even art or movie making or directing. You know, one of the reasons he talked to me is because I was friends of a friend. I'm not sure Francis read my other books, you know. Really? I'm not sure. But we had a mutual friend and that feeling of friendship is so who he is. It's how he it's how he thinks about the people that he works with. You know, these are my friends. It's what he lacked growing up as a boy suffering from polio. It's one of the things that he wanted me to get in this book when we first started talking. He said, you know, make sure people understand that all I wanted was to be part of the community and be part of the fun. And that's friendship. It's the truth. My guest, who I'm sure Francis Coppola read his books, is Sam Watson. His newest book is about Francis Coppola or Francis Ford Coppola. That's all in the book, too. The book is The Path to Paradise. You can also hear the show at kcrw.com slash the treatment. But Sam, I, I think what's so interesting about this is that it reminds me so many people compartmentalize Francis when they write about him. Mm. It becomes this binary thing. He's this or this. Mm. He's this mythic figure who has to consume everything around him. Or he's this incompetent financier. Mm. And and the fact that you're able to knit so many of these pieces together, that need to want to build a, a place where people feel like they can offer their, their best and not compete. But at the same time, there's the pressure of capitalism. It's the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Yeah. But so many of these things have been written about in just one or two ways. And you feel like you want to complete the entire picture. I was always dissatisfied with the writing on Francis for 
the reason you mention, because a lot of it was informed by this idea of Francis as the bad businessman, Francis the impractical, Francis the megalomaniac, Francis the indulgent in one compartment, as you say, and then on the other hand, it's the director of The Godfather. Well, that's not really a way to organize a life. That's part of my job is say, well, a person is not a million different things. A person really is, if you look at it spiritually, one thing, sometimes two things if they're in conflict. So what is this one thing that is Francis is really about? It's not The Godfather. It's not money. It's building the better world. And when I figured that out, I knew that I had a view of Francis that encompassed all of it and resisted compartmentalizing. And, and I think what happens so often in this book that everything feels like the kind of defeat that would finish somebody off, mm. he comes back from. Yeah. I mean, to go going from that episode to then making The Rain People, which is a, a kind of disaster in and of itself. Yeah. But it's also this movie that's inventing itself yes. in real time. Yes. This thing you're talking about. We bring these people together who you think would never be able to work together. It's, it's Shirley Knight and, and James Caan and, and Robert Duvall. That relationship between those two guys went on forever. And he ended up putting so many people together who, who became units that he was able to not bounce back, but move forward was just an, a, a series of continual astonishments. Yes, me. maybe I am a spiritual person. I really don't know. But for Francis to be able to be destroyed and then recreate himself so many times, to have that um, North Star that he was always had in his sights, I can't think of any other way to um, describe it. Mere mortals would have been down for the count Nobody has gambled the way that Francis has. I don't, and I don't just mean financially. I mean emotionally, and I mean artistically. And nobody has suffered in this way. It, it really does seem to me to be spiritual. I, I can't, I can't describe it in when any other way. When you talk to him, do you get that sense from him when you speak to him? No, I don't think that he thinks about it this way. But. Maybe that's just my own view of ambition and community building and wanting people to be together and enjoy themselves. That's maybe just my own view of what religion should be for. And I look, I actually look to Hollywood to provide that religion. I wish Hollywood took that responsibility as seriously as it used to. And in fact, it it really did. You know, the, the ethical impulse to make movies and bring people together, not just uh, as audiences, but as filmmakers. I do think Francis views it that way. I don't think he would characterize it as, as spiritual, though. We've talked about this before, because and, and it shocked you when I brought it up, that so many of the books that you've done were about people living through the end of an era. Yeah. And and this one is a case where it's the guy who's looking for the future. I mean, he's seeing these eras end around him. Yeah. And he's pushing for the next iteration of yeah. that. But these, You're right. these eras refuse to die You're around right. him. You're right. Yeah. No, that's my story, Elvis. I mean, that's definitely how I see myself as witnessing the end of of an era. I grew up around here, around filmmakers, and for the last 40 years of my life have informally heard the conversation from all sides of the movie business tend towards the negative. And it 
became only natural for me to try to figure out how did that happen? When was it positive? Is that just a fiction? Is that just a nostalgia that we have? A romance with the idea of the past? Or was it in fact actually better at some point? And it's been my obsession to really look at that as closely as possible and chart what I see as a decline with the hope, and I believe this is a hopeful book, with the hope of one day pointing us back to how we can go back. And that's part of why it's the path to paradise, because I do believe Francis does have an idea for how we can restart the movie business and recreate community here in Hollywood. It's so interesting, too, because we've done with these things his way that he finds incorporated the worst disaster. And of course, one of the worst, and this whole last section of the book is basically going from one disaster to another, from one from the heart to the dissolution of Zoetrope, to selling to somebody who then he owes money to, to the death of his son. To me, Tucker is his most optimistic movie. He's a movie yeah. shot in the most primary colors. It's got the most sunlight in it. Right. And it's also about this man kind of willing his this family into building this project that no one else takes seriously. Yeah, that's it. The movie's called Tucker, A Man in His Dream. This book could have been called uh, Francis Coppola, A Man in His Dream. And you're right about the primary colors of that movie. It really is. I never thought of it. I mean, it really is his most optimistic movie. And that's that's the feeling of inspiration that you get when you're with Francis. It is those primary colors. It is bursting with, let's do it, and, and a million different ideas coming at you at once, like Jeff Bridges in that movie. It's just... It, irrepressible enthusiasm. You know what I learned? Enthusiasm comes from, I guess the Greek is entheos is the God within. And we're talking about the spiritual component of this. And the word enthusiasm so describes Francis, I wasn't surprised to learn that it comes from the concept of the God with within. It's before him reckoning with that death, which is really what The Godfather 3 is about, and this fear that the worst thing that could happen is not that, you know, everything is taken away from you, but you lose your child and you still live on after that. The the horror of the last 10 minutes of that movie, which you really get, you, you talk about that movie here, that has never sort of been reckoned with. And you, the, one of the things, too, getting back to the way his life was reported, nobody thought to sort of, well, wait a second, this guy just lost a child. Yeah. And he's making a movie. You were the first, the first to sort of connect that and that period to what he was dealing with in emotional Well, terms. Well, Francis lives his movies. He lives the movie to understand the movie. That's why they must be an improvisation. Because he is doing the research of living it. Godfather, he was going through death and dying. He cast Sophia to play Michael's daughter, and she gets shot. That was part of Francis creating almost like a happening, a lived experience. And this comes out of the 60s happening culture and community building, like we say. You're a big boy uh, now. Man. You're a big boy now. And the uh, Rain People was a road trip to film a road trip. They didn't know where the story was going to take them pretty much. They got in a car and improvised this story by experiencing the emotions and then putting it into the movie. So you get this feedback loop of life and movie and life and movie and life and movie. 
No one has said that. No, I mean, no one has said that. That is why Francis makes movies. And uh, very few people make movies that way because movies are so expensive. You can't just say, well, last night I had a dream. I had a, I had an argument with Eleanor that really sheds light on this situation. We're going to have to change the scene today. No, that's nuts. You can't do that. But when you're Francis, you have to do that. And that becomes the triumph. And in the case with One from the Heart, it's downfall because the problem, the real life problem of male-female love relationships, which Francis was trying to resolve in that movie, he never managed to resolve in his real life. One of the things that I, I, I so admire about what you've done in the book, Sam, is that you take the failures as seriously as the successes. Thank his, you. His, his failures shouldn't be written off. Yeah. And, and just sort of attributed to either he's the crazy business person right. or he was an egomaniac. Right. Rather than there being part of a mosaic. I'm so glad you brought this up because it so bothers me the way that that film journalists have written about Francis. And a lot of this comes, I must say, from New York and the New York Times, a view of Los Angeles and Hollywood as wasteful, extravagant, venal. And also him coming up with that in movie brat period where that kind of behavior, that word brat was ascribed yes. to all of those filmmakers. Yes, look at all the money these people in Hollywood are throwing around. You know, no attempt, and I went back and I reread all of this reporting, no attempt to understand why that money was being spent the way it was or to respect the fact that it was Francis's own money that he was spending. And they criticize him for spending money in the millions for trying to really save the movie business and yet no one's criticized as francis said for superman 2 spending that kind of money uh it's and reshooting the entire movie and reshooting the entire movie so it's always shocking to me the american antipathy to hollywood economy which must take risks in order for for it to be good and francis is the perfect example of that so i really wanted to correct that in the book and celebrate him for it my guest whose newest book because again he doesn't write enough apparently is sam watson the book is the path to paradise a francis ford coppola story i like that a francis that's ford right coppola there are story. many yeah and that's why i'm trying to draw attention to this. Sam Watson is its author. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have me and, and in person. Thank you so much for the Thank you, Sam. Elvis. Thank you. Returning guest and writer Sam Watson, whose fascination with the obsessed has led to his newest book. It's called The Path to Paradise, a Francis Ford Coppola story. I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's The Treatment. It's The Treatment. I'm Elvis Mitchell. With The Treat, first-time Oscar nominee for Best Actor, Coleman Domingo, star of the biopic, Rustin. His thoughts on how the poetry of a legendary playwright have never left his bloodstream. Hi, I'm Coleman Domingo, and this is The Treat. I always go back to Shakespeare because I think, you know, just the way... Shakespeare can tell a story with one line 
or build upon a story is always beautiful to me. I did this uh, Midsummer Night's Dream many years ago at California Shakespeare Theater. When I was a young actor coming of age in San Francisco, I, I just would stay in rehearsal rooms that I wasn't even called for because I was fascinated in how to, how to use this language. It was something I, I wasn't afraid of. I was like, it was learning something that I knew would, would have a great impact on me. And I was tasked with um, Lysander, uh, one of the lovers. With Shakespeare, once you memorize it, it's it's in there. It's just in there. My Mercutio monologues, you name it, all in there. But there's one in particular that goes, um, it's about love and about the highs and lows of love. For aught that I could ever read, could ever hear by Taylor history, the course of true love never did run smooth. But either it was different in blood or else Miss Grafford with respective years or else it stood upon the choice of friends, or if there were a sympathy in choice, war, death, or sickness did lay siege to it, making it momentary as a sound, swift as a shadow, short as any dream, swift as the lightning in the collate night, that in a spleen unfolds both heaven and earth, and ere a man has power to say, Behold! The jaws of darkness do devour it up. So quick, right things come to confusion. It's that confusion of young love. These two are thinking about love and the costs of love. And is it available, but also the brightness and the quickness of it. And then sometimes how it goes away. That stays with me because I think it's such a complicated thought and theory about love and the possibility of it. They mention war, death, or sickness in the middle of this fantastical world of being in the forest. But that's what, that's what I love about Midsummer in particular because you have to go into the forest and into the fairyland and to come out and emerge again anew. There's, there's fairies sprinkling things or really bringing out what's actually buried inside, you know, through these, you know, hallucinogenics. <laughs> it says a lot. I'm like, oh, I guess they were dropping, dropping acid back then. But, <laughs> but, but that's fantastic. But it's, it's fantastic because it's like how we have to be willing to go into, you know, Miyazaki does that. You have to go into these fantastical places to find out the truths about who you are and come out again and renewed. playwright and actor Coleman Domingo. He's nominated for Best Actor for the title role in the film Rustin on the staying power of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Past treats such as Ethan Hawke on a performance that he never got out of his head at the archive, kcrw.com slash the treat. A moment's exposure to a moment that became an obsession and how those obsessions led to a lifelong pursuit of creativity from artists of all endeavors. It's the treat and it's the treatment produced and edited by Rebecca Mooney and mixed by Katie Gilchrist. We wouldn't be here without help. This week from Laura Kondarajan and Hope Rush. To better days, everyone, I'm Elvis Mitchell. It's The Treatment.
KCRW sponsors include Make It Universal and Rotten Tomatoes, presenting Scene on the Screen with Jacqueline Coley, a new podcast about the people at NBC Universal and the movies that define them. Available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.